Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move, another great show on tap. Forgive the promote on Wall Street, the Bulls sounding a more positive note. A key Fed policy meeting starts. Will they rock the boat? Elon Musk fires Twitter's board, battling corporate bloat. And one week before the U.S. midterms vote, huge oil profits getting President Biden's goat. BP and Aramco posting huge profits today. Definitely no time to gloat. One more. It's a new month of trade and stock market futures are, yes, afloat. Green arrows on the screen and Europe sold today too. As you can see, they're higher by more than half a percent, one and a half percent there. The Fed set to raise rates by another jumbo three quarters of a percentage point tomorrow. But investors believe a slowdown in the severity of hikes is nearer. Any indication of that, of course, is going to be absolutely key for sentiment. Hopes for a still elusive j pivot helped the Dow post its biggest monthly gain since 1976 last month, a rise of near 14%, as you can see on the screen in front of you. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was a winner too, despite weak results from big tech, though both markets, of course, starting from a very beaten-up base level. Oil firms were the outperformers as blockbuster earnings gush in. ExxonMobil rising 20% last month. In fact, it's up 80% this year so far. Similar October gains for Occidental Petroleum too. That's up 150% since January. That said, a volatile day of trading for all majors on Monday after U.S. President Biden discussed windfall taxes targeting the industry. Biden blasting big oil, suggesting they are profiteering from the war. Escalating rhetoric, but tax hikes would need congressional approval, of course, too. Future oil profits depend, too, on whether China can jumpstart growth held back by zeroed COVID policies, too. Asia rallying today after social media speculation that zero COVID policies in China could be relaxed. Highly doubtful, at least at this stage, I think, especially with Shanghai Disneyland shutting down and Foxconn assembly workers fleeing the factory compound, protesting health conditions. A live report from Beijing coming right up. We'll also discuss China's outlook with China critic Carl Bass, the CIO of Heyman Capital, coming up later on in the show. But first... We begin once again in Ukraine, where water and power have now been fully restored in Kyiv, according to the city's mayor. That's just 24 hours or so after Russian missiles struck critical infrastructure in the Ukrainian capital. And in other developments, more ships have been able to leave Ukrainian ports today, despite objections by Russia. Moscow has suspended its involvement in a UN-brokered grain deal, as we were discussing yesterday. And Western officials say Iran is preparing to send additional weapons to Russia, including ballistic missiles. Let's get straight to Salma Albadiziz in Kiev for us. Salma, good to have you with us. Uh, incredible work, I think, by authorities and workers there to re-establish both power and water connections in Kiev. I guess that the, the fundamental question is how long for? Um, talk us through what they've managed to achieve. It's, it's pretty huge. 
Absolutely. Local officials say that they worked around the clock, 24 hours through the night to bring back, restore water and power services. As you mentioned, this was quite a severe attack yesterday. 80% of the city's residents, after that barrage of missiles was fired, 80% of the city's residents here in the capital did not have access to running water. Hundreds of thousands of homes were without power. But the mayor saying, look, yes, we have it back up for now, but we still have to be prepared that the infrastructure of this country is absolutely fragile. It is precarious. It is not a guarantee. He's pled with families to store water at home, to conserve energy where they can. And officials are taking steps all across the country, really, to try to prepare in the winter months, uh, delaying train times, running less trains, uh, having scheduled power outages, cutting off streetlights, whatever possible ways and means they can conserve energy. They are taking those steps. And we've also heard that officials say Ukrainians are running out of the equipment they need to even repair power grids. So there is a plea now from President Zelensky to the international community, to his allies and partners to provide more equipment. He's asking for generators. He's asking for power equipment, anything that can help this country go through the winter. But again, you're looking at an infrastructure that has now sustained weeks of damage. All it takes is a couple of Russian missiles to go through and massive suffering occurs. Julia. As you said, fragile, and I think, unfortunately, it's the perfect word here. At the same time, a relatively high-profile Russian denouncing his citizenship on Instagram. What can you tell us about Oleg Tinkov? Yes, this is quite a rare move, not something we've witnessed before, but billionaire Russian banker Oleg Tenkov, he gave up his Russian citizenship after posting on Instagram, and I'm going to read you what the quote said. Uh, I cannot and will not be associated with a fascist country that started war with pe- with a peaceful neighbor. Uh, that's what he posted on his in- Instagram. It was later taken down. It's not the first time that Tenkov has opposed the war uh, openly and publicly. However, it is important to note that he was in March sanctioned by the UK for, quote, uh, supporting the invasion here. Uh, That would include, of course, asset freezes, travel bans, but it's still a very rare comment we're hearing here. There was one other uh, Russian billionaire who's done something similar, the founder of Revolts, Nikolai Stronska. He had also renounced his Russian citizenship, but again, a very rare move. We've seen sanctions rolled out over the course of this conflict, billionaires having their yachts taken, uh, but at the same time, that has done little we see to really break the base around President Putin. So a really rare move here, and we'll see what the consequences, what the rollout might be from that. And again, this is a billionaire, someone who is behind a huge company. So it does begin to indicate what are the concerns when it comes to the financial services for these Russian billionaires. Mm, There's a PR battle, a moral battle, in addition to many others going on here. And um these moments are worth noting, I think. Sama, great to have you with us. Thank you. Sama Abdelaziz there in Kiev. OK, let's head to Brazil now, where far-right leader Jair Bolsonaro still hasn't conceded. After losing the presidential election on Sunday, Bolsonaro expected to address the country today as fears grow that he might refuse to accept the results and set off political unrest. Overnight, some of his supporters blocked highways and major roads protesting those election results. Paula Newton joins us now from Sao Paulo. Paula, we were worrying about this yesterday. There's, there's the political aspect of this with the Brazil Supreme Electoral Court already stating that, that Lula's won, but for the people and those that support Bolsonaro, a different story. What are we expecting him to say today? 
Well, we do expect to hear from President Bolsonaro uh, today. The issue is, is it already too late? Uh, you know, and we talk about these protests, and Julia, you know how critical it is for Brazil um, to really get on with the uh, goal of economic growth. The fact that their goal in all of this has to be that there will be a peaceful transition and that this economy, these people can continue on with their lives and, and really try and grow this economy in a way it hasn't been able to in the last decade. Instead, what do you have, Julia? You have voters, uh, Bolsonaro supporters, telling us that they will stay in the streets um, until Bolsonaro is declared the winner, because that's who they believe won this election. Listen. We have a president that won at the ballot box, and they defrauded the ballot boxes and put the other candidate ahead, and we're against that. Even if Bolsonaro accepts, the people will not accept it, because the power comes from the people. The people were the ones who put Bolsonaro there, and were the ones who would remove him as well. What's interesting here, Julia, is the fact that uh, allies of Bolsonaro uh, continue to say that they understand that this disruption cannot be tolerated. We just had a press conference from the governor of Sao Paulo state here. He is talking about trying to remove a lot of the protesters, saying that he will do it quickly and that the military police will remove everyone by force if they do not go willingly. But, Julia, obviously no one wants that escalation. And given a, at a point in time when Brazil needs a very peaceful transition to the presidency of Lula da Silva, many are now watching the president to see if he can even do anything to really remove the protesters. Because at, at this point, some of them have even told us, Julia, that they don't care what he says, even if he concedes, they are not ready to concede. And again, it reflects such a division in this country that we saw right through the campaign. Julia? Yeah, got to act in the greater good of the country now. Paula Newton, thank you so much for that. We'll see what he says later today. A year and a half after he was ousted, the former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu casting his vote in the nation's fifth election in four years. Attempting a political comeback, his hopes of forming a 61-seat majority government could rely on the support of Israel's most far-right politicians. Hadass Gold joins us now from Jerusalem, and she's watching that vote. Hadass, that's the question. Obviously, we have no idea of the result yet, but the question is, in order to reach a majority, will he have to make some serious compromises with those on the far right of the country's political system? You've spoken yeah. to him. What did he yeah, have to Joanna. say? Yeah, Julia, I'm outside of a polling station. This is actually where uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who voted, cast his own vote earlier today. Behind me, you can see the posters lining the way into the polling station. Candidates trying to uh, last minute convince voters to vote their way. And although this is the fifth time in just three and a half years that Israelis are going to the polls, it's different this time. Most markedly is that for the first time in 13 years, when Benjamin Netanyahu cast his ballot this morning, he did so not as the sitting prime minister. Of course, he was ousted more than a year and a half ago by that coalition formed by the current prime minister, uh, Yair Lapid. What's also different this time, and really what for many is at stake here, is the rise of the far right of Israeli politics. And that's because, as you noted, in order to likely form a governing coalition, because Netanyahu's own party, Likud, will not get enough seats to get that 61-seat majority in parliament, he will most likely need to rely on a growing far right party. One of their leaders, Julia, was in the past convicted for inciting racism and for 
for supporting terrorism. And so there is a, a question about how much will he be relying on them and how much power will they have in a new government? I asked him that question earlier today. Take a listen. We don't want uh, a, a government with the Muslim Brotherhood who uh, support terrorists and deny the existence of Israel and are pretty hostile to the United States, too. That's what we're going to bring in. And so, Julia, as, as you can tell, he didn't exactly answer my question. What he was referring to is the fact that this current coalition government has, for the first time in history, an Arab-Israeli party sitting uh, with them. Now, polls leading up to Election Day did show that the pro-Netanyahu bloc of parties are the closest to that 61-seat majority needed to have a ruling government. But not all the polls had him even reaching 61. So it's really kind of a razor-thin margin. Now, the anti-Netanyahu bloc has fewer seats. Us, we all know uh, the voter turnout is really d depends on who will actually win in the end. Will it be the pro-Netanyahu voters who come out in force? You know, the uh, Likud, his party officials say that they believe something like hundreds of thousands of voters let, were sat at home last, last election and didn't come out to vote. Or will it be the 17 percent or so uh, of Israeli Arabs who will come out and vote and help boost the anti-Netanyahu bloc? But Julia, what's really interesting so far is despite the fact this is the fifth election in less than four years, Turnout so far is the highest it's been since 1999. Julia. Wow. So people certainly feel motivated to vote, if, uh, if nothing else. And uh, I agree with you. That was a perfectly uh, politician-like response to, to a good question. And well done for dealing with my endless question at the beginning of this conversation to try and uh, trip you up a few times, too. We shall see what happens. Haddis Gold, great to have you with us. Thank you. And be sure to watch our live coverage of Israel's election results as the polls close later today. That's 8 p.m. in London, 10 p.m. in Tel Aviv, right here on CNN. Now to India, and this is all that's left after a bridge collapse that killed at least 150 people. Police have arrested nine individuals in connection with the accident, which happened after the bridge recently reopened after scheduled maintenance. Those in custody are all linked to the company that worked on the bridge during that time. The Indian government has agreed to compensate families of the victims. Earlier, Prime Minister Narendra Modi visited the scene. And China showing no signs of ending its zero COVID policy. Just take a look at this video. Some employees of Apple supplier Foxconn fleeing a factory in central China after a COVID outbreak forced them into lockdown. The company has quadrupled daily bonuses to $55 in an effort to retain workers. Meanwhile, the city of Shanghai abruptly locked down Disneyland, ordering all visitors to stay until they get a negative COVID test. Selena Wang joins us now. And I shall point out she's back in quarantine in Beijing. Selena, you know what quarantine is like after your uh, back and forth travel and, and the restrictions. So we hope you're doing OK uh, under those conditions. But just talk us through. They're clearly trying to encourage workers to remain. But when you're faced with the prospect of being locked into a building as a result of COVID policies, you understand people's reluctance. Yeah, Julia, I'm starting to lose track of how many quarantines I've been through since the pandemic started. I'm on day two of 10 here in Beijing. Now, what this chaos at that Zhengzhou factory represents is just the intense struggle that international businesses still face in China. That Zhengzhou factory, it is the biggest iPhone plant in China in the central city of Zhengzhou. Workers there, they are fleeing these COVID restrictions. They had been flooding social media in recent days over the lack of quality food. The 
difficulty in getting enough food in the subpar living conditions. If we can just take a look at that social media video again, you are seeing workers flee in mass by foot, walking miles and miles, some of them, across highways. There's other videos that show them with all of their luggage walking through farm fields, going through these intense distances just to get away from that factory. Now, this could have a big impact on Apple, especially during a critical time period. Julia, we are getting close to that holiday season. According to CounterPoint Research, they estimate that 10 to 30 percent of iPhone 14 production could be impacted in the near term if the situation doesn't stabilize. Analysts estimate that this Zinzo factory, it accounts for as much as 85 percent assembly capacity. So this is a major deal, but some of these researchers are saying they do see the stabilizing in the coming weeks as the situation gradually improves. But look, zero COVID, it's still having a massive disruption on people's daily lives, on businesses. The entire city of Zunzo, in fact, which has more than 12 million people, it's been under lockdown since late October. And it's not just the city of Zunzo. There are many places under China that are still going under lockdown in year three of the pandemic. What all of this is reminding global businesses, the harsh lockdowns, the harsh border control rules, which I'm living through myself, they are reminders to global businesses that China may not be as reliable of a place for global production as they once thought. We are seeing Apple trying to diversify their production. They are increasing capacity in India in order to reduce that dependence. Oh, and we just lost her. Speaking of less reliability, I think we lost the internet connection there. Uh, I will thank Selena Wang, but we will continue this conversation straight ahead. As um, Selena was saying, zero COVID continues as President Xi's political grip, of course, also tightens. What will this all mean for the West, for doing business, for global growth, and of course, for Taiwan? Insight from longtime China watcher and critic to investor Carl Bass. Plus, reinforcing reproductive rights. One beauty brands packing a real punch with profits. That's coming up too. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And as we saw before the break, the fleeing of Foxconn employees shows no sign of a shift in the zero COVID strategy in China, rebutting hopes, I think, of a relaxation of measures following China's Communist Party Congress. It was a week that saw President Xi shake up the party's leadership, installing those most loyal to him while removing those perceived to have a greater focus on things like reform. Our next guest says she appears to have installed, quote, a war cabinet. The question is, what next? Carl Bass, a longtime China critic and investor, joins us now on the show. Carl, always fantastic to get your insights. Welcome back on the show. I, I just want to take and get your take. We saw, I think, a chilling effect on investors in China's um, financial assets. We also, I think, around the world saw those images of, of the former president, Hu Jintao, being physically removed from that Chinese party congress as well. Overall, what was your take? And days later now that you've had time to assess, what was your view? Well, Julia, uh, first of all, it's great to be here. Um, I think it's really important to analyze exactly who she uh, sacked and who he replaced them with on the, in the, both the, the Politburo, the Central Committee, and even the Central Military Commission. Um, what he did is he he publicly humiliated the the former leader, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, by physically removing him from the, the closing ceremonies of the 20th Party Congress. But he also removed any Hu Jintao loyalist or anyone re related to 
the basically the reform and opening or the communist youth league that Hu Jintao uh, was known as as kind of the head of. And so he replaced anyone that was a reform and opener with the spy chief, the head of, of the Ministry of State Security, with the police chief, uh, military police chief of the Ministry of Public Security. Uh, and and then he took uh, a weapons boss, the, the head of the manufacturer of, of China's weapons, and, and added him to the standing committee, or not the standing committee, the Politburo. Uh, and he took the person in charge of of uh, assimilating the Uyghurs and committing the cultural and ethnic genocide in Xinjiang and, and added him uh, to the Politburo with a, a he, basically he took out anyone that was a uh, reform and opening or markets based and replaced them with military police weapons and, and uh, uh, operational know-how. So it looks to me, it looks clear as day that he installed the war cabinet and it's something that the press and, and the international community has missed so far, something that Matt Partinger at, at Garneau Group has has uh, has pointed out, uh, and, and so far the only person I've seen catch it, uh, is they removed the words reform and opening uh, from any any mention in the in the party charter, and they they replaced it with the term great struggle. The most interesting part about the seven instances of great struggle in the in the party charter is when China delivered the, the English language version of the new party charter to the press, uh, they intentionally mistranslated the great struggle and put words like fight uh, in, in there. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, let's say uh, they mistranslated it in six out of the seven times into something that wasn't as, as damning as the great struggle. So I think it's important to note that uh, the the tectonic shifts in the architecture of the Politburo, the Central Committee, are showing a, a war footing. Okay, so there's two things here. Um, uh, the, the sort of translation error um, that, that you're talking about, my Mandarin's not up to the, uh, to the translation, so I can't say that I've um, independently verified that, but I have seen talk of it, um, as you point out as well. Um, there's one thing, there's what it means domestically and the, the sort of power play and, and what it means if you remove people that have promoted sort of reform, better international relations, for example, and how you as a country continue to grow to support jobs, which is also crucial for China, but also what it means outwardly what it means for relations with the international community, with the United States, what it means for Taiwan in the, in the shorter term and in the longer term. Carl, just give me your sense of, of how China manages to maintain domestic stability and domestic growth and also where you see this now moving internationally. Yeah, um, you know, when you, when you really understand what the words great struggle mean, mm. it means both, both preparing themselves for conflict internally and externally, uh, the words that that she used in his in his speech and in his uh, amendments to the party papers uh, were were incredibly chilling. Uh, just imagine if President Biden, in one in one move of a pen, uh, removed the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the head of uh, um, so you have the SEC, you have the the head of the Central Bank, the PBOC, Yigang was yanked, uh, and their finance minister. They removed all three of those in one move and replaced them with, again, the spy chief, uh, the police chief and and uh, uh, a weapons manufacturer. Just 
what what message is that sending to those that are actually invested in China, Julia? That's why the markets had such a horrible response mm. to the amendments that were made uh, over the weekend, right? That normally what happens is they file the new party charter on the first day of, of the party Congress, which was October 16th. And then they made these amendments last weekend. And, and that's when all of the, the fireworks happened with Hu Jintao. So I, I think transcending reform and opening with the great struggle and specifically uh, the words that, that, that have been used, uh, you know, are, are words like resource competition and currency war uh, and ideological struggle and territorial disputes and, G even moved the goalposts for what what use of force would be used for in in Taiwan. One was in the in the in the prior declaration. It was if Taiwan were to ever seek independence, that's when force would be used. And now, uh, it, it, it China can use force in the event that uh, Taiwan resists a peaceful reunification, i.e. Uh, uh, you know, it's almost like someone that refuses to break up uh, with their wife or their girlfriend, and now they're going to force it to happen. And if they don't want it to happen, they're going to, again, use force. So it's pretty, it's pretty chilling for the world to see the architecture of the foundation of the Standing Committee at the Politburo, the Politburo and the Central Military Commission, and the words she used in his speeches lead me to believe that he is absolutely going to move on Taiwan in the next year or two. You believe that? Because just so yeah. my audience is clear, and if they remember our discussion, I mean, you long before we saw the shift in Hong Kong, you were predicting real trouble. So you think within the next year, China makes a move, a physical move in, in Taiwan? Yes. I mean, in the, in the end of his speech, uh, she said, uh, prepare to undergo high winds and waves and even for stormy seas of a major test. I mean, what I mean, what how else can you read anything into that? How do you expect the United States in particular to react to that? I mean, there's all sorts of geopolitical consequences. There's financial consequences with China being the world's largest chip producer. And that's required for growth and products all around the world. How would you expect the United States specifically to react? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Julia, uh, it, it, Taiwan semi produces uh, the overwhelming majority of, of the highest end chips in the world between Taiwan Semi and ASL, ASML uh, in Holland. Those are the two most important high end chip manufacturers in the world. Um, so it, it, we realized our strategic uh, position uh, being uh, in deficit back in 2016, 2017 and uh, if you've looked out towards the Phoenix area, Taiwan Semi is building massive uh, chip mm. foundries. Uh, you've never seen more cranes in one place in your life. $14 billion, $15 billion buildings. The problem is uh, those things take five years to build. And uh, we're still right in the middle uh, of building uh, many chip, uh, chip uh, foundries. As you know, Samsung announced one in Taylor, Texas. Intel's building one to, uh uh, Texas Instruments is building one Taiwan Semi, but the real issue, Julia, is no one makes two nanometer chip uh, uh, chips other than Taiwan Semi. Uh, even the new ones that are being built in in Phoenix are only five nanometer chipsets. They're called last generation, uh, and so it's important from a national security perspective that the U.S. is going to have to react. The question is, will it be kinetically, or will it be economically, or will it be both? Um, and, and unfortunately, nobody wants this to happen, right? You don't want it to happen. I don't want it to happen. 
you know, people say that that I'm just warmongering. I'm I'm reading the tea leaves, uh, mm-hmm. and I think we all get paid to identify and 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 really try to understand what's happening. And it's clear as day what's happening. The problem is. Uh, is uh, it puts the world in a very, very, very difficult position, as as she said, uh, even for stormy seas and a major test. I think that major test is coming. Can anything prevent it, Carl? Be it, I mean, we're one week out from the midterms, a a Republican Congress, a Republican president in the White House. I'm just throwing things out there. Can anything prevent this? what what's silly between you in the question? It's kind of silly that you say, uh, "Can a Republican president, re, you know, avoid a war?" You have to realize this isn't the United States is doing. This is China's newfound uh, belligerence, and and they've really been there since two thousand nine when they believed they pulled the world out of the global financial crisis. It's the first time they ever felt like they were financially strong. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you, Julia, if you look at, you know, forty percent of Chinese GDP is is uh, driven by uh, uh, real estate in the concentric circles around real estate. And she has really, uh, uh, let's say, doused the fire or the flames uh, of their real estate ascendancy. What he realized, Julia, was that the average home price in tier one cities in China got to 36 times income because they allowed uh, unmitigated uh, speculation. At, at the peak of U.S. subprime uh, greatness, we were six times uh, median income. So uh, they got they got to a place where the average Chinese male uh, or head of household couldn't afford, couldn't even cl- come close to affording buying a house. So they weren't marrying, they weren't having children. And now the birth rate in China is 1.2. So the Chinese population is dying off at a very steep uh, 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 angle. And it, and it's, and it's, and it baffled uh, Xi and his people. So I think he realized that he had to rein in uh, uh, the real estate markets, which, by the way, means there's not going to be a bounce. They're going to push it down and hold it down. And if you look at the Chinese property developers, look at the look at the dollar bonds for Evergrande, the most indebted developer in the world. Uh, those bonds are right around zero and and uh, country gardens headed to zero. So I think that that we're in for a Chinese economic contraction. I think we are in for a Hong Kong banking crisis. And I think that the good news is, is the best place in the world to invest is the U.S., and that's where the money uh, will flock to. And and so I think that we're some bad news on the horizon, but the good news is, is uh, the U.S. is still the greatest place in the world to invest. And I think Asia and Europe realizes that, and I think that's what's actually uh, buoying our markets a bit. Yeah, I was about to say, um, the upshot of that, I think, is continue to buy the U.S. dollar, no matter what anyone says about it, um, it being overvalued. And um, I think your point about the politics was a mute one. I was just wondering whether um, perhaps uh, belligerence can fight some degree of belligerence. But I agree with you completely. This is not about any other nation, but but what's happening in China alone. Um, Carl, it's always brilliant to talk to you. And as always, there's more to discuss. We'll get you back soon, please. Thank you for sharing your uh, your views and wisdom. My, Carl Bass there. My pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. OK, coming up. Big oil profits, big political risks. OPEC oil producers defending cuts to production at a key oil summit in Abu Dhabi. We'll take you there next.
Welcome back to First Move. The Wall Street Bulls hoping for a first day of November to remember the major averages beginning the new month with across-the-board gains. Positive results today from drug maker Pfizer and ride-hailing app Uber also contributing to sentiment. The oil sector on the rise too, driven by robust earnings news from that sector. Saudi Aramco reporting a Q3 profit jump of almost 40% today. It's the second best quarter on record, I believe. BP reporting third quarter profits, two of more than $8 billion. ExxonMobil, Chevron and Shell outperforming as well. All this great news for investors, but outsized profits leave all majors open to political risk. President Biden yesterday escalating his rhetoric against the industry. He's floating a sector-wide windfall profits tax. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. Mm. Lenny Jokos joins us now. She's live at the International Petroleum Exhibition and Conference in Abu Dhabi, where industry profits are topic numero uno. Saudi Arabia and the UAE defending recent OPEC production cuts too. Eleni got to be controversial, huge profits, a war going on at the same time. It's bound to face a backlash. Yeah. And I tell you, just everyone completely unapologetic about um, the production cut, saying, listen, if we need to have energy security and the medium to longer term outlook requires the world to invest over $12 trillion um, in the oil and gas industry, then we have to have oil prices at a certain level. And that has been the big message when you're speaking to oil um, leaders or majors and you're speaking to ministers, that this is basically sort of the overriding message that you're hearing. You know, listening to that list of oil majors, uh, Julia, that are reporting record third quarter profits or close to record levels, it basically speaks to the fact that it was a combination of higher oil prices, higher demand, volatility in the supply demand scenario, which was basically prompted by the Russian war in Ukraine that gave this stellar performance that we've seen. But can it continue? OPEC says they're already seeing a dwindling in demand, um, which is going to continue for the next few months. But we're also hearing from emerging market leaders saying, listen, if oil prices remain at elevated levels around what we're seeing now, $90 a barrel, that this could exacerbate recessionary fears and this could actually prolong a global recession. Of course, oil touches everything we absolutely buy. What has been interesting is the criticism um, by the U.S. towards Saudi Arabia and importantly for OPEC plus decision makers cutting production and what that would mean in terms of the relationship. So politics very much intertwined in what we're doing. But when it comes to energy security, Julia, that is always paramount, right? And I think that that trumps all other conversations. And I think there's a really big fear and a very serious one that once demand starts to pick up again, that there isn't enough capacity globally, or at least by OPEC members, to be able to fill in that demand scenario. So these are some of the conversations that are being had. But let me tell you, a lot of the criticism is still being levied and and finger pointing is absolutely still happening, at least in the corridors. 
Lenny, great to have you with us. And um, yes, no surprise, the finger pointing, I think, will certainly continue um, and the debate will continue too. I don't know how I feel about taxing windfall profits. Just force the money into renewables, force them to invest in renewables to diversify that mix, to your point about energy security. But um, we shall reconvene on this conversation. Great to have you there. And thank you so much for joining us today. Good to see you. Okay, still to come here on First Move, beauty brands take a stand on reproductive rights ahead of the U.S. midterm vote. I speak to the CEO of one of them after this. Welcome back to First Move. In just one week, Americans will head to the polls for the critical midterm elections. And abortion is on the ballot, too, in at least four states. A recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation showed half of registered voters say they are now more motivated to vote after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned what's known as Roe v. Wade. That decision led the beauty company Say to launch the Everybody campaign, a first of its kind human rights initiative to raise awareness and funds for reproductive rights. In partnership with reproductive justice collective Sister Song, the campaign allows people to donate donate to protect reproductive freedoms by shopping limited edition products from over 35 beauty brands. And that includes Elf Cosmetics, Glow Recipe and Herbivore Botanicals. And joining us now is Lainey Krause. She's founder and CEO of Say. Lainey, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I know this is personal for you. You're, you're a mother of two. You're fighting for the right for women to be able to make their own choices, ultimately. Just explain why you just decided, look, maybe we maybe got caught off guard by this decision. Now we have to act. So for me personally, yes, I'm a mom of two daughters. I was distraught, like I think most of us were after Roe vs. Wade was overturned. And I, my husband said to me, well, why don't you do something? And I knew that as a brand, we have a huge following, but collectively as a beauty industry, we are really powerful. I know you have um, a history and career beyond actually starting your own brand, um, say, of being in big beauty business. And I think one of the things that resonates certainly for me on this show and conversations with sort of big company CEOs is this nervousness to take a stand on big issues like this because they, they don't want to alienate sort of half their, their customer base. How do, you, how do you think about that specifically when you choose to make a I, firm stance like this? I, I love this question. We, our beauty industry started by, led by, run from, and honestly profiting majority from women. So for us, this is just good business. I was reading in Vox the other day that 85% of Americans approve of abortion um, at some point. So, you know, that's just, it's, it's, it makes sense for us as an industry. So what you're saying is you don't perceive it to be alienating really any part of your, your customer base, it's important to take a stand and be perceived to take a stand. Oh, for sure. And the response has been incredible. We've raised over $100,000 in just four days from these limited edition products. And our communities, our staff, um, everyone working at all of our companies have just been so positive and thankful um, and excited. Do you think it's going to make an impact? This kind of campaign, as you said, you know, it's we're only a week out from the midterms. This is it's a shorter term issue, but it's a longer term issue for for women all across the United States, particularly at a time when 
you're running a, a relatively new business. You have to make all sorts of choices about costs, about rising input prices, about what you charge your consumers. Do you have enough bandwidth, I guess is what I'm asking, to sort of pump money into, into causes like this? That's a great question. There have been a lot of late nights for this campaign, but you know, Juve Consulting actually recently reported that 42% of Gen Zers make decisions and purchases based off of companies' missions and purposes. So again, like for us, this is something that we believe very passionately in, but also something that just makes sense from a business point of view. So at Say, for example, you know, we are a clean and performance-driven makeup brand, but we're driven by our people and planet mission to create positive change. And our community, that's just something that's really important to them. Wow. You know, I, we were just showing those statistics there. And one of them said, I think 52% of Gen Zers would return a gift that they were given that that wasn't sustainable. Um, and as you were just saying there, it sort of cuts to the, the ethos of your brand. You're very focused on having um, a net zero and beyond carbon footprint. What you do is sustainable. I know you're very careful about the plastics that you use as well. And actually you, you offset or more than offset what you use there. I mean, that's, again, it comes back to the question of cost. Is it, is it viable to protect the planet and also be profitable, whether you're a small business, a growing business or a large one in your mind? Or does that just simply have to be part of the, of the ethos going forward, particularly if you've got so many of your future customers saying, we need this from you? I couldn't agree more. I think you look at companies like Patagonia, for example, and they have so many dedicated um, customers who I know people that only shop Patagonia because of how um, strong their mission is and how outspoken they are on it. And I started say because I wanted to make beauty better. And so for us, it's something that's important to our soul, but also we see the future and we see how important that is to business in the future. What's the ambition, Lainey, ultimately for, for this campaign? For the campaign, um, you know, we wanted to, number one, raise awareness for Sister Song. Sister Song is such an incredible organization standing up for people affected the most by the abortion bans. They're based in the South, so they're literally on the front lines. So I'm so excited that everyone has Sister Song um, in their Instagram captions. You know, people are talking about it all over TikTok right now. And we wanted to raise funds. So we've had incredible success there with products selling out already. And and then, you know, it's time for the midterms. It's time to talk about voting. It's time to get our communities to the polls. I was mentioning that we're power, more powerful together. Just our brands, our Instagram following is over 13 million. When you add in our founders and our TikTok communities and the influencers that we seeded to, it's over 300 million followers. Wow. Um, well, in terms of the number of people in the United States of America, that's, um, and obviously there's some crossover there, but, um, that's a powerful vote and could be a really powerful message. Um, Lainey, thank you for joining us on the show and, um, thank you for, for the work that you're doing and uh, deciding to act. I think the critical point here to not just be upset. Lainey Crowell, founder and CEO of Say. Thank you. Great to chat to you today and we'll speak again soon. Okay, next. Halloween may be over, but here's a question for you. What does the world's most famous horror author have to do with the newly appointed CEO of Twitter? Well, you can find out 
in just a few moments. Welcome back to First Move. The Musk era of Twitter is only a few days old, but it's already seeing huge changes. At least four top executives have been terminated, including the former CEO, who will be replaced, of course, by Elon Musk himself, at least for now, the chief twit, as he's calling himself. The company's previous board of directors was also dissolved as part of the merger agreement. Paula Monica is here. I mean, there's nothing private about this private company, quite frankly, but it's important and normal, surely, for an incoming CEO in this kind of situation to oust the old board and bring in the new. But there's a lot of criticism being made. Yeah, I think there are legitimate concerns, Julia, about what Elon Musk wants to do with Twitter. His tweets sometimes, let's be honest, are not necessarily the most mature type of discourse and dialogue you'd expect from a mature, supposedly adult man who also happens to be the richest individual on the planet. But all that being said, I think the bigger concern, as we've discussed on this show numerous times, Elon Musk is an extremely busy individual because he is also the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, and he runs the Boring Company and Neuralink. There are lots of things going on in his life. Forget about his personal life. Does he really have the mental bandwidth to also try and fix Twitter? Because we know that Twitter is not exactly the most popular social media platform out there. No, and I agree. But I would have to say that this man is, is someone with an enormous brain. So if, if anyone has the capacity to do this, he does. I mean, TechCrunch compared him to a dictator. They said he, he is right now. Twitter has what amounts to a dictator. I was like, steady on. It's been a few days. They've been excitable, as they always are in Elon Musk's life. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens with the new board if he appoints a new board. There have been some to interesting To be fair, tweets, he said though. that it's temporary, that there will be yes. a new board. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I just I, I defend this aspect of um, what we're seeing. Now, let's talk about monetization. Stephen King, famous author, saying uh, you should be paying basically for my content rather than me paying to have a blue tick. And he got a response from Elon Musk, which is quite fun. And Elon said, what about paying $8 a month, Paul? Exactly. I think it's interesting that, that, I mean, the (laughs) fact that Elon Musk is having this public negotiation with the most famous author, arguably in the world, a horror novel author on Halloween, nonetheless, (laughs) Uh, really is fascinating, Julia. And I think it does beg the question. There are a lot of people, individuals, who I don't think will pay up to remain verified unless people like us, for example, at CNN, wind up having it expensed by the corporation. I mean, I have a blue check mark. I can tell you right now that there is no way I'm going to pay one cent to keep that blue check mark. I will gladly sacrifice it if someone's asking me to pay my own money. I don't value that verification that much, to be honest. But there are other people who are more powerful than I am, who have bigger followings, uh, who probably will pay up. But just the question does become, how much will they pay? Is it a one-time fee instead of a monthly subscription? I mean, there are Mm. a lot of options, I think. I just think it was sort of arbitrary to go from twenty dollars to eight, uh, which was quite comical was beyond anything pivot. else. Yeah, why not? Do 10? I? Yeah. <laughs> must I pay to provide my content? But the most amusing tweet was the fact that he said if he had a dollar for every time someone asked him whether Trump was coming back, um, that would be it. Twitter monetized. Fabulous, Paul. We've got to go, Paul and Monica. Thank you so much for that, as always. And that's it for the show. 
Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.